We are wrapping up our series. It's called Halftime. And if you've missed the last couple weeks, um, we kicked off this idea of how to finish the second half of the year well, because we're about halfway there. And in week one, we talked about our ability to do that with God's help and this amazing group that's gone before us as our brothers and sisters in the faith. And last week, we talked about this idea that if we would make every day count and count it as precious, it would improve the direction and quality of our lives. And this is what we believe for you and for us and all of us, whether you believe in Jesus or not, is that we can make the second half of this year better than the first half. And I think a lot of us are feeling like that would be a really good thing. So today to get us going, I want to talk about something that has the potential to trip us up. And that is this idea of appetites. Now, ladies, let me just help you out because a man's appetites are pretty simple. It's pretty much food, sex, and sleep. And most of you go, yep, that's true. Food, sex, and sleep men are pretty content with. And women, because you're more sophisticated than us dudes, you know, you value security and love and companionship, and we should follow your lead in that. But just to get us on the same page, here are some appetites that we probably share. There's the food appetite, the sex appetite. There's this idea of an appetite for responsibility and that's not like overwhelming responsibility, but influence and how to move people in a direction. Many of us have an appetite for comfort and relaxation and having fun, for approval. I mean, all of us have this appetite for wanting someone to approve of us. Maybe it's your father, maybe it's your mother, your boss. Um, We have an appetite for wins. I love to win at things. This strange idea of being envied. I mean, that seems a little weird, but if we're really honest with ourselves, we would say, yeah, I kind of like when people envy me. They look at me and go, hey, I kind of like to be who he is, who she is, and that's not always good, but it's true. Now, here's the thought behind appetites. Appetites, God created them, almost all of them, but sin distorted them. Think about food, for instance. Food is this incredible gift by God that keeps us alive, it fuels our bodies, but when sin gets involved and we eat too much and we pack on 30 extra pounds, which might lead us to diabetes or heart problems, if you're really hungry, you know, you can get a little angry. My daughter-in-law says I'm hungry, so I'm hangry, hungry and angry put together. Take the idea of sex. I mean, I am convinced that God gave sex to a married couple as one of his greatest gifts to a married couple, just to reemphasize that. But when sex goes through the filter of sin and it's distorted, I mean, it can be one of the ugliest things that hurt men and women and children, maybe like nothing else that the world has ever seen. Here's another idea about appetites, that appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. I mean, back to the food thing, just for a minute, maybe once upon a time you sat at a Thanksgiving meal and you ate to your heart's content, but you were so full you had to unbutton the top button of your pants and you said, I'll never eat again. But you know this, 12 hours later, 15 hours later, you were hungry because your appetite is never fully and finally satisfied. I mean, you may have bought a car that you never thought you could buy, and now you had that car, and you drove it for a year, and then you saw a newer, faster, shinier car, and you thought, I have to have that car now. It's an appetite. When it comes to our money, you know, you may be making a little bit of money, and you're satisfied in the moment, but then you start thinking, if I had more money, and how much is enough, and how much can I get my hands on, because it's an appetite. Another interesting thing about appetites, that appetites always whisper now, never later. Appetites have no patience in anything. They want what they want, and they want them now, and that is how they get us in trouble. And here's the thing. Our ability to manage our appetites 
sets the course and direction for our lives. But I'm convinced of this. You can't rule your appetites and you can't conquer your appetites. You can get a handle on them, but if you do not manage them constantly with the help of your heavenly father, my heavenly father, our appetites come back around and they can get the best of us. I think about you know, what I do for a living. I, you know, I'm a pastor and I think about how many pastors all of a sudden you read the paper or on Twitter that they've lost their jobs. And almost never do they lose their jobs because all of a sudden they became bad communicators or had bad theology all of a sudden. It's usually because an appetite got a hold of a pastor. He, he couldn't withstand not having that thing or that person. He chased after wasn't what, what wasn't his. And he lost his job. And he lost his reputation. And I, I pay careful attention to this. Well, to help all of us figure this out today, we're going to go back to a story that's literally thousands of years old in the ancient Hebrew scriptures. It's, it's a book called Genesis, and it's about two brothers, an older brother and a younger brother, and a birthright. Now, to give you some context, because we don't use this phrase or this idea of a birthright in our culture you know, very often, in Jewish culture, thousands of years ago, a birthright went to the oldest son. Now, that's not fair if you're a daughter or you're a younger son, but it's just the way it worked in Jewish culture. And if you had the family's birthright, it meant you got the lion's share of the inheritance and the financial responsibility was yours, but you got to spend the money the way you wanted to. And along with that went authority. And in these families, you know, in ancient you know, Jewish culture, some of them were big. They were considered tribes. And so you would lead and guide hundreds of people or thousands of people sometimes. And so you had authority over that. Not to mention this very interesting thing that if you had a birthright, Jewish people believed that you had an extra blessing from God. And so a birthright was super valuable, super meaningful. And if you had it, you protected it if you were that oldest son in a family. But we're told this about these two sons and their birthright. We're told once when Jacob, that's the younger son or the younger brother, was cooking some stew. You know, this is interesting. Jacob could cook. Jacob was also pretty sneaky. Jacob, you know, was kind of a dreamer. That's what we're told about him. He was cooking some stew. Esau, the older brother, and we're told in other contexts that he was a burly guy. He was actually a little bit hairy. He was just the older, bigger, stronger brother. Esau came in from the open country and he was famished. Now hang on to that word famished because it's going to describe an appetite for Esau, the older brother. He said to Jacob, he said to Jacob, the younger brother, quick, let me have some of that red stew. I am famished. So now we have this interaction between two brothers. Now, I don't have any brothers, but I do have two, three sons, um, and two of them are pretty close in age, Jacob and Joshua. They're two years apart. And Jacob, the older brother, my son, you know, was always a little bit bigger, naturally just a little bit stronger. And so he could just kind of be the dominant one. And his way to deal with his younger brother was just to kind of throw him into the couch or when he was really angry, I guess, throw him into the wall. But Joshua, my younger son, he was like a ninja. He was sneaky in his way to deal with his brother. He'd go running through the living room and flip a Lego at his brother and run out the door, get on his bike and go down the road and escape whatever consequences there were. And that's kind of the description of these two brothers. The older one is bigger and stronger and in charge, but the younger one is tricky. He's a ninja. He's crafty. This is what we're told. Jacob, the younger brother, replied, first, sell me your birthright, which you go, whoa, 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 Jacob, are you kidding me? Why don't you shoot a little lower? Why don't you ask for some money or to borrow your brother's car? I mean, if you're really courageous, ask to date his girlfriend, but you want his 
birthright. You want him to give up his blessing, his financial you know, place in life and the authority over our family for a bowl of stew? Which begs the question, who would do that? Who would give up something really, really important for something that didn't matter in the long run? Even if you wanted it so bad in the moment, who would trade a marriage for something that won't last forever? Who would trade a career for an impulse or something you wanted right now? Who would trade you know, the relationship with your grown children because you weren't there for them when they were little? Who would trade a reputation for something that was fleeting? That's the question that's being asked. Who would trade your birthright for a bowl of stew? Do you know who would trade something really important for something that's not so important? You would. And I would. But here's the caveat. If it was the right bowl of stew, if it was the thing that caught our attention, if it was the thing that captured our imagination, that we wanted in the moment, because appetites are never fully and finally satisfied. And they're all things that God created, but sin has broken. And they do not wait for later. They want what they want now. And Esau, this older brother, is a picture of you and he's a picture of me at every stage of our lives or the potential you or me at every stage of our lives. Look, look what Esau said. He said, look, look, come on, Jacob. I'm about to die, Esau said. Now, if you were there, you would say, Esau, you walked into this camp on your own two feet, carrying whatever was in your hands and in your arms, and you sat down, and you can legibly talk. You're not about to die. Your blood sugar might be a little low. You're hungry. You're feeling this appetite, but you are not about to die. And then he says, what good is this birthright to me? Um, Esau, can I answer that? How about your family's money? How about your heavenly father's blessing? How about the authority to lead your family where you want to go? You're asking what good is it? I mean, I can give you a list of how important and precious it is. How good is it? It's really important. You see, what Esau runs into in this moment is something that scientists and psychologists had discovered, this thing called focalism. Now, focalism has been around for thousands of years, but we're just getting a handle on it you know, through research today. Focalism focuses our minds on one thing and blurs out everything else. It's when something comes into your vision and everything gets pushed to the side. And maybe you remember this because you remember meeting her in high school. And she smelled so good and she was so pretty, nothing else mattered. Maybe you met him in college. He was cool and had it going on and you forgot about everyone else in your life. It's when you focus on something and you forget what matters most. Now Esau, he, he focuses on this bowl of stew. And who needs a birthright? What does that matter? What, what, what matters you know, for my future, my grandchildren's future? What matters to the direction of our family? None of that matters. I just want this bowl of stew. And again, so we're not too hard on Esau. Almost all of us have done this along the way in our life. And here's what's interesting. I don't care how long you've been a Christian. I don't care how much you've read the scripture. I don't care how much you pray. This can happen to all of us. That's why we need to pay attention to it and learn to manage it. It goes on. But Jacob said, swear to me first. So he swore an oath to him, selling his birthright to Jacob for a bowl of stew. Now, if you could be there, you and I would love just to sit down with Esau and say, Esau, come here, man. Can, can I just talk to you for a minute? 
Can I just share a few thoughts with you? You, you don't know this yet, but in the future, you know, there's going to be 12 parts of your family, and they're going to be 12 tribes. And those 12 tribes are going to go from thousands of people to hundreds of thousands of people to millions of people. Yeah, Esau, it's your family. Now, eventually, something tragic is going to happen. They're going to be you know, captured by a community called Egypt. And they're going to be made slaves, but they're going to be your family. And God's going to choose a deliverer. His name is Moses, Esau. I know you don't know who he is, but his name is Moses. He's going to become really famous. And when God approaches Moses and introduces himself to Moses, what he's going to say, if you get this next moment right, is I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Esau. And Esau will go, "I, I, I didn't know that. But you would want to say to him, but that's not the way it's going to go down if you take that bowl of stew and you give up your birthright. But Esau, there's something even bigger than that. 2,000 years after that, Jesus is going to show up on the planet. And he's going to show up, you know, God in a body. And he's going to come to redeem the entire world. It's going to change everything. And you get to be part of the story. And Jesus is going to have a friend named Matthew who's going to document Jesus is coming into this world and what he did. And this is how Matthew is going to start out his documentation of Jesus' life with a genealogy. And he's going to write, this is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Esau. Esau, you're in the story. Your name is going to be mentioned in a text that will be read for thousands and thousands of years to introduce Jesus. Now, Esau, listen to me. Come on, look me in the eye. I know you're hungry. I know that stew looks better than anything else in the world. But it would be better for you to die than to take that bowl of stew and give up your birthright. It would be better for you to give up everything except that birthright. See, the problem with Esau, he had no one there to reframe how he saw the situation because all he could see is the bowl of stew. Now, don't be too hard on Esau because we all have been places in our lives where it was a person, a job, an amount of money, a medication, drug, where we just couldn't take our eyes off on it. We sacrificed a lot to get it. Story goes on, and it's a bit tragic. It says, then Jacob gave Esau some bread and some lentil stew. And he ate and he drank. And then he got up and left. And so Esau despised his birthright. I'll bet he did. He gave up everything for a bowl of stew. Now, let's just go back for a minute to that little passage of scripture that Matthew wrote about the introduction of Jesus to this world. This is what Matthew writes after this incident. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of, not Esau, Jacob. And that is in the scriptures for eternity because of that bowl of stew. Now, this is a huge deal for you and I because we're in the second half of the year. And again, maybe the first half you didn't accomplish or do all the things you wanted to do as a human being, as a follower of Christ with your kids, your family. But this idea of appetites, it'll never go away. And if we don't find a way to reframe the context of our decisions and move away from our appetites a little bit, we have the potential to undermine our entire lives 
For instance, maybe you stood across from a woman and said, I do. And you gave her your heart and you said, for you know, better, for worse, for richer, for poorer. And you were committed to her in that moment. And then along the way, maybe seven years later, 20 years later, or 50 years later, something else came along and it's a little more inviting. In that moment, you have a choice. Am I going to follow an appetite? Or are going to follow what's best in my life? Maybe for you, it's your children. Because you could do some stuff right now. I could do some stuff to undermine the respect and my relationship with my adult children. And maybe your kids are four, five, six years old. But you're not thinking about 20 years from now when they're adults. You're thinking about just this moment. And you got to reframe and think about what matters most. For you, maybe it's your faith. Somewhere along the line recently, you put your trust in Jesus and you found out this amazing thing that God gave his son for you. Jesus died for your sins and your response to that was here, take my life, Jesus. You're my Lord, you're my savior, you're my king. But now something else has got your attention and you're just kind of drifting away from the faith that changed your lives. Can Can I just say this to you? There are some things that you should never do in your life. There are some places you should never go. There are some activities that you should never consider putting your kids in because it undermines the wholeness and healthiness of your family. There may be a woman you should never meet alone or maybe at all. There may be a man that's not your husband that you got to stop texting right now before your appetite turns into a huge regret. Because appetites, they dictate our future. So this is what I love for you to think about. I'm thinking about this right now. You know, what about six months from now? Where do you want to be? Where do you want to be with your family, with the church you love, with your job, with your health? I mean, think about whatever is important. Where do you want to be in six months? How about six years? How about 50 years from now? Right now, we'll write the story of where you are in the future. So the question for us this morning as we wrap up this series, simply this, what's your bowl of stew? And I think we all have different bowls we're chasing after. What's yours? And maybe the way for you to figure that out, and this is the way I'm trying to figure it out in my life, is this, you know, what are you talking yourself into? What are you talking yourself into that you said you'd never do? For instance, maybe you follow Jesus and you said, I will never move in with a person of the opposite sex until I'm married. That's just a standard of mine. But now he's come along and she smells so good and it's going to happen forever. So let's just go ahead and do it now. And you've compromised on something you said you'd never do. What are you talking yourself into? What are you spending that you'd never spend Where are you going that you said you'd never go or take what you never take? What is it for you that you talked yourself into? Here's a challenging question for those of us that are married. What are you contemplating that your spouse is uncomfortable with? I'm telling you, listening to your spouse is a powerful thing. Listening to my wife has helped me out more than I can describe. What is your spouse worried about that you're not worried about, but maybe you should? The reason why I think this is so important for me is one of my favorite things in life is to sit with my adult children and my family and my friends. And I love to talk about the good old days. In fact, I craft ways around family meals to pause everything so we can talk about the good old days, you know, the camping trips, the time together, the ball games, the time we had Christmas, you know, around the table. I love to go deep into those days. Now, what I've realized as I have grown older is in the moment I'm living right now, I am actually writing the good old days. You're the parent of little kids. Right now, you're writing the good old days for your little kids. 
And someday you're going to look back and you want to be able to talk about the good old days, but your story is happening right now. And the challenge for all of us is we have the tendency to go, no, 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 no. I'm different. I'm not like Esau. Matt, I'm not like you. I'm not like everybody else. I'm a unique and different in this way. And I, I just got to break the tough news to you is, no, you're not. Neither am I. We all have appetites that sin has distorted. One last question for you to just consider. What, what is it that you are doing that it's not illegal or immoral necessarily, but you hope no one finds out about? I mean, you're not going to go to jail but you don't want anybody to know. That should be a red flag for what's going on in your life. Do not trade your best story because you're just trying to kind of get something that's not best for you. Now, with all that said, I want to pause and I want to say just a really quick word to young people. Young people, I hope you're listening to this message. Parents, if you've got teenagers, you know, 12-year-olds in your house, 25-year-olds, make them watch this message. Pay them to watch this message. Young people, look at me, look at me. You are young. So many of us would give anything to go back where you are and rewrite some of our story. But we do not have the ability to do that. That's what's tragic. All we can do is think to our future. But young people, you're 15, you're 20, and God has an amazing purpose for who you are and what he wants to do with your life and in his kingdom. And right now, if you would just Put your mindset in the heart of God and what he wants for you and what matters most. You can write an amazing story about how you changed at least your part of the world and your part of your life for eternity. And you could look back and say, I didn't get it all right and I made some mistakes, but my regrets were minimized because I chose not to trade what was most important for a bowl of stew or whatever bowl of stew is important to you. So my suggestion, young people, older people, is simply this. Would you consider reframing how you look at things and then when you see things that are just like a bowl of stew, refraining from them? Reframe, that's why you gotta have some people around to say, no, that's not smart, that's not wise, and then you gotta listen. And then when you hear truths taught through scripture and Jesus, and hopefully I help a, a little bit, you pay attention, you put them into application, and you reframe how you see something, and then you refrain from going towards it. And you don't trade your birthright, your family, your reputation, your health, your marriage, your children for a bowl of stew. And my prayer for you, my prayer for me is we trade nothing for things that are cheap because you matter too much to God. You matter so much to God, he gave his son to die on a cross for you. Your life is important, it is valuable. So I'm just suggesting Let's be careful with our appetites. Let's manage them. And let's finish the next half of this year and the rest of our lives well. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for this story about these two brothers. And I see myself in Esau more than I care to admit. But for myself and everybody that's tuning into this, I pray, Lord, that we would reframe the things that are unhealthy and cheap in our lives and refrain from it and lean into what matters most, the things that are eternal, the people in our lives, the purpose in our lives, and we would live our lives for you. And Lord Jesus, we're gonna need your strength to accomplish all that. So help us do it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.